0: Long before Disney turned it into a theme park mecca, Central Florida began attracting vacationers.
1: Orlando was one of America's original tropical vacation lands. Back in the
0: 1800s, people would take steamships down the rivers. Coming up, Jason Cochran explores what you'll find around Orlando beyond the Disney parks. A newsman for the Tampa Bay Times explains Florida to the rest of us.
2: We would much rather not think about tomorrow because we're continuing to chase the dollar today, which is a very Floridian attitude. Craig
0: Pittman tells us how what may be America's weirdest state is often a trendsetter for the rest of the country. And Ken Ilgunis discovered that times really are changing after he followed the route of a controversial oil pipeline on foot across the Great Plains.
3: We live in a different age. This is the Anthropocene. This is when we're aware of what we're doing to the planet, what we're doing to cause climate change.
0: Connect with America in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. The blisters and barbed wire, beef jerky dinners, and menacing cows were just some of the things that turned his wintertime camping hike into something worth writing home about. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, Ken Ilgunas gives us the details on his four-month hike across the Great Plains to assert the right to roam and to learn what people thought about a controversial pipeline that was scheduled to be built across their land. And a humorist and environmental writer from the Tampa Bay area tries to explain Florida to the rest of us, including why some of his state's leaders don't take climate change seriously. 20 million people visit Walt Disney World in Florida each year, but if they spend all their vacation time at the theme parks, they're missing out on everything from old-school kitsch to arts, culture, and even outer space attractions in Orlando and Central Florida. Jason Cochran writes, "Romer's Easy Guide to Disney World, Universal, and Orlando... And he joins us now to look at the other attractions the area offers. Jason, welcome. Hey, good to be here. Jason, really, why would anyone go to Orlando if they aren't planning to just visit Disney World? Well, that's the only reason many people do go to Orlando.
1: But no, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things to see beyond it. And then we're even talking beyond Universal, which people already know about in SeaWorld. Orlando was one of America's original tropical vacation lands. Back in the 1800s, people would take steamships down the rivers Hmm. through the middle of Florida. And northerners dreamed of building their, you know, retirement mansions down there. And they did. And you can still tour some of them. So Orlando still has a lot to offer. That's
0: why it was chosen by Walt Disney. Let's just say there was no Disney World and you went to Orlando. What are the top three or four sites that you want to have on your radar? well rick did you know that we put men on the moon
1: (laughs) i mean you may not know this but it's true and we did it from central florida kennedy space center is open they let you see how they did it you know look at the space capsules the the spacesuits it's it's an incredibly elaborate huge area In fact, you need to take a bus to get from exhibit to exhibit you can see entire rockets laid flat in huge warehouses you can experience the thunder of the firing room. They still put launches up there.
0: So they put energy. They put energy into their visitor center there and, and you feel it's welcome.
1: beautiful. They've got one of the old space shuttles there hmm. hanging from the ceiling at an angle of 43.21 degrees. Get it 4321 uh, like uh, a countdown. That's good. But uh, you can actually look at the I think it's the Atlantis. The space dust is still on it. And that's just about 45 minutes east of Disney. But, you know, when I was a kid in the 70s, everyone went to the Kennedy Space Center because America was still fired up about all the things we had Ah. achieved in space. Now, it's like pulling teeth to get people to go look at their heritage and and, and the incredible industry and creativity and science that happened in Florida.
0: Well, that's because you got the Festival of the Lion King at Hollywood Studios. Why would you not go to... (laughs) (laughs) So you do have some competition there. But what else might you see using Orlando as a base? People
1: aren't aware that one of the best collections of glass by Lewis Comfort Tiffany is not in New York City, Hmm. where he did a lot of his work, but it's in Orlando, specifically in Winter Park, which is this lovely little tree-shaded brick-lined town just north of downtown Orlando. And it's at the Charles Hosmer Morse Museum of American Art. They have a chapel that he built for the World's Columbian Exposition of 1893 in Chicago, and that's built completely inside this exhibit. And a lot of parts of uh, his home, Laurelton Hall, which was on Long Island, which has since been lost, were actually saved and rebuilt inside this museum too. Plus, just lots and lots of interesting pieces of glass. Hmm. In fact, when the Met recently did an exhibition of Tiffany, uh, in the Metropolitan in New York, they came to the Morse to Hmm. try to get a lot of their pieces. Jason
0: Cochran is editor-in-chief at Fromer's Travel Guides, and every year he updates Fromer's Easy Guide to Disney World, Universal, and Orlando. We also talked with Jason about the challenge of managing your time at the Florida Disney Resorts and Theme Parks. You can listen to that interview on the Travel with Rick Steves program number 486. Look for it in our show archives from June 2017 in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Jason, uh... Is there much of a downtown Orlando that is has any charm? Uh, should we know about that?
1: It, downtown Orlando is mostly residential. There are some nice little places to have brunch and a pretty lake called Eola in the middle. It doesn't tend to... They've tried many times to build things that draw people in significant numbers, and the only people who tend to use them are locals. Mm-hmm. So it'd be a great place to to meet people from Orlando, the people who work at the banks and even the theme parks. There's a history museum for the area, which is actually quite fascinating because the history goes back thousands of years for the native people, and they'll have artifacts that are as much as several thousand years old there. But in general, downtown Orlando is one of those things I try to get people to go visit, and they go, huh, you know, it's all right.
0: (laughs) An interesting thing you wrote about in your guidebook is Bush Gardens, which is 70 miles away, but you get there in just a little more than an hour, and you wait that long in a line at Disney World, and then you've got this... (laughs) what sounds like just an amazing theme park with the ultimate roller coasters. Like, you you mentioned, I love this line, if roller coasters were an arms race, Busch Gardens would annihilate the rest of Orlando.
1: (laughs) It's true. I think it's partly because in Orlando, everything is expected to be family-friendly for the little ones, so the punches are sort of pulled in a lot of the roller coasters. But in Busch Gardens, which is in Tampa, they go for the jugular. You can find uh, (laughs) much more thrilling coasters. So if you do go down to Florida looking for the most intense coasters... I think SeaWorld has one or two, but Busch Gardens has the best collection.
0: And then uh, Legoland. I mean, some kids are just Legomaniacs. Is that, when my kid was little, that was just, man, if we were near a Legoland, we had to go there. How's the Legoland in Florida?
1: You know, I find it really charming. First of all, Legoland goes back to that original tourism heritage of Florida that I was talking about. Back in the 1930s. The piece of land that Legoland is on now was called Cypress Gardens. And you might remember seeing Cypress Gardens back, you know, in the middle 20th century. I think they shot some Esther Williams movies there, the water skiing. And uh, I think uh, Johnny Carson might have hosted a week's worth of shows there. It was a real draw. Now Legoland is on that property and Mm. they've maintained some of the historic gardens of the old cypress trees and original swamp flora and fauna. But the other part of the park is it's a perfect children's version of an amusement park in that you'll have versions of adult rides that are squeezed down to a size where a four-year-old won't be afraid mm. to ride it. So it's all geared just for the little ones, not for, you know, once you're nine or ten, you've outgrown it. But that's what makes it so sweet.
0: The older kids take him to bush Gardens for those white-knuckle rides, but uh, Legoland sounds like it's worth knowing about.
1: And it feels like you're in Florida there. For the first time, when you look out over the lake and you know there are gators out there, you really feel like, oh, okay,
0: I'm in Central Florida. Now, we've got SeaWorld. That's a big deal. And how does that relate to different water parks that people like?
1: Well, that one went in right after the first park at Disney. So it was the second park to open up down there. Hmm. And uh, in recent years, they've been trying to change their image and uh, downplay some of the animals and turn up the thrills. So Hmm. last year, they built... An incredible roller coaster that's actually now my favorite roller coaster in Orlando.
0: Now, there's a lot of um, shows with the various uh, fish and so on. Pets Ahoy, you said, is really good, but it sounds to me like You've got to get there early in order to have a seat.
1: <laughs> ahoy is adorable, though. Ironically, SeaWorld, one of its best shows, does not involve sea creatures. It's all rescue animals. Huh. And they perform little tricks, you know, cats and mice playing together on stage, that kind of thing. Ah. But yeah, their line will start for that as much as an hour ahead of time because it's so good and because no one has any problem watching a dog who wants to perform. They're clearly they're enjoying it. So I think Ahoy is, is one of the more beloved attractions
0: at SeaWorld now. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jason Cochran, and his book is The Fromer's Easy Guide to Disney World, Universal, and Orlando. And uh, the last big attraction outside of Disney World would be Universal Orlando. Now this is owned by Comcast, and they put a lot of money into that to compete with Disney oh, World. Boy, have they? How oh, boy, is, yeah. is this is this working? Is it actually able to compete with the,
1: the It is working behemoth of the area? It is definitely working. They have risen to be the other major resort. In the old days, you would just sort of, oh, maybe I'll go to Universal for a day or two. But after they opened their second park and then added the Wizarding World of Harry Potter the numbers just skyrocketed. And they keep building hotel after hotel. And this summer, they build the most technologically advanced water slide park that has ever opened, Volcano Bay. So they're really coming after Disney with guns blazing, and it's working. Generally now, people break Orlando down into two camps. Disney is what you do when the kids are a little bit younger and believe in princesses. But, you know, when they start thinking things are cool or uncool and they want some thrills, you graduate to Universal. In their teens,
0: Universal becomes the place to go. You visit these parks year after year. It must be constantly in flux.
1: Yeah, whatever's being sold at the moment by the corporation on both Disney and Universal properties are what, what's being sold as a ride. This year at Universal, they're opening, and this is the strangest idea, a ride starring Jimmy Fallon from The Tonight Show. But when you can have a ride for a talk show host, that's synergy.
0: <laughs> that's capitalism. Yeah, it sure is. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Jason Cochran, and his book is The Fromer's Easy Guide to Disney World, Universal, and Orlando. Jason, we've got all these amusement parks. Let's just wrap up this discussion with some suggestion on something just really surprising that was just kind of quirky, and then how to appreciate nature in Florida. When you're in Orlando, you just want a little dose of nature. Start with mm. quirky, and then take us to something natural.
1: Okay, I got your quirky. It's a town called Casadega. It's about 45 minutes north of Orlando. And it's a town where you must be an accredited psychic in order to live there. I'm not sure how that test works, but it's a town of psychics. And it was built there in the late 1800s during the spiritualism craze that swept America. But you go there, and it's this beautiful but creaky... Slightly shabby town with, you know, Spanish moss hanging down. And you can get, your mediums will come and tell you what spirits are around you. Psychics will have a reading with you. And it's kind of creepy. They'll do nighttime photography tours to try to capture (laughs) orbs of spiritual light. Okay, I'm going there on Halloween. It's fascinating, yeah. And the people are lovely.
0: Okay, so I've got that figured out. Now, take me to some beautiful slice of nature to give me a, a time to just get centered again after all the craziness.
1: Not too far from Casadega, there's a place called De Leon Springs. That's a state park. Central Florida has about 300 freshwater springs welling up from the ground. In fact, that's why people originally started to go there as a tourist site, thinking these waters would cure them of diseases. And one of the best ones is there at De Leon. And there's this cute little place. It's called the Old Spanish Mill. It's set up next to one of the springs. Inside, there are tables With hot griddles embedded in each table, you make your own all-you-can-eat pancakes at the sugar mill. And then you go jump in the the spring, which is, I think, about 72 degrees no matter when you go all year round. But there are other other springs around. Blue Springs, you might see manatees because that's closer to the ocean. So there's a lot of springs as well that people don't go to, and I'm not sure why. It's lovely, and it gives you peace, like you were talking about. So I recommend that at the end of your trip when you need to sort of wash the theme park grime off of your spirit. I'm telling you, when you're blue, well, there's a lot to do, in the house of bamboo.
0: Up next, Craig Pittman from the Tampa Bay Times takes your calls at 877-333-7425 as we look at what makes Florida a paradise for some and a punchline for others on Travel with Rick Steves. To outsiders, Florida can be baffling. It often seems like a kind of petri dish for popular trends, both good and bad. And its residents seem to regularly make the headlines for crazy hijinks as well as more serious drama. As a native-born son... Tampa Bay Times writer Craig Pittman knows that Florida is a lot more than sinkholes and hurricanes, python swallowing alligators, and sideshow hucksters. It might also be one of the most influential states in the Union. He's written Oh Florida, How America's Weirdest State Influences the Rest of the Country, in order to explain the Sunshine State to the rest of us. Craig, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. You said it, not me, America's weirdest state and how it influences the rest of the country. Absolutely. How is Florida weird?
2: Oh, my goodness. Let me count the ways. Well, we are constantly getting in the news for stories involving people running around with machetes. We have these great road rage incidents. My favorite one is the headline from one newspaper. It said, man in road rage incident runs over self. (laughs) You know, there's constantly stories involving our wildlife. Uh, The most famous one recently is the guy who picked up an alligator and threw it through the drive through window at a Wendy's uh, and was charged with assault with a deadly weapon where the weapon, of course, was the alligator. So, you know, we've got all of those things going on. We've got more invasive species than any other state. And so that means all our, you know, pythons that show up on, on people's doorsteps or, you know, we've got problems with iguanas that will climb up in the trees, and then when we have a cold snap, suddenly they'll freeze and they'll fall out of the tree, and people have to kind of dodge them as they're walking around. And we have 20 million people living here now, plus we get about 100 million tourists every year. So you put that many people together from that many different places, speaking that many different languages, and everybody drives in a different My way. Goodness. And you up kind of wind up <laughs> with people, you know, in, involved in conflicts of one kind or another, often involving swinging a machete.
0: <laughs> Craig, you're a, a journalist for the Tampa Bay Times. Uh, Do you find yourself debating, is this, am I just trying to get clicks here or is this real news?
2: I think if you can find a deeper meaning to these stories, then that's a good way to go. And that's what I tried to do with my book, where I tell some of the, some of the crazy stuff that goes on in Florida, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the, the various stories about, you know, people who got into, (laughs) got into serious problems while doing something they shouldn't have done. And then, but also tried to relate it to other things that were going on or show how, that particular case wound up influencing the rest of the country. For instance, there's a, a story in there about two crooked police officers who were walking their beat during the day, and then at night they'd go back and break into those same businesses and, and rob them. Hmm. And they were communicating by walkie-talkie. And hmm. one night a ham radio operator with insomnia happened to intercept their communications, turned it over to the police. Of course, they recognized the voices. You know, oh, my God, it's, you know, Bob and Ted. Oh, my God. And, and <laughs> uh, so the, the two guys were prosecuted. And their attorney appealed the case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, arguing that they could not get a fair trial because, for the first time ever, there was a TV camera in the courtroom. And the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that, no, it was okay to have cameras in the courtroom as a result of this case. And that's why you can watch, you know, coverage of of your local trials on, uh, on the TV, all because of two crooked Florida cops and a ham radio operator with insomnia.
0: Yeah, that's an example of the various quirky but pretty important ways that Florida has been influential for the rest of the country. Just paging through your book, you know, I came across uh, it's the mortgage fraud capital of the country. It's the tax fraud capital, identity theft capital, pill mill kingdom. Ted Bundy was finally arrested there. It's the home of the very first Hooters. You write that crimes tend to be weirder and scams tend to be bigger in Florida.
2: Yes, absolutely. You know, we had a trio of con men who convinced some elderly victims to fork over a million dollars because they said they these people needed special toilet paper, special government-approved toilet oh, paper. God. I mean, <laughs> you just can't imagine that happening in any other state, can you? But do you find that
0: your politicians would tend to be um, champions of the consumer?
2: We uh, have the reputation, maybe is a good way to put it, of having the largest number of politicians convicted of corruption of any other state. The number varies. We're usually at least in the top five. Partly, the reason for that is that the Politicians know that each time they face the electorate, they're going to face a different group of voters because we have so many new people moving in mm. every year and they're not familiar with what the issues were in the last election or even maybe even last week. And so they'll mm. go make their decision based on who has the best TV ads and maybe what, you know, the one neighbor who's lived there for 5 years says is wow. going on. And that's it. And so it's really easy in Florida for politicians to, you know, sort of kick the can down the road on big issues. And it's also easy for them to get reelected even after they've done something incredibly wrong. I think I mentioned in the book uh, one politician who had been charged with mortgage fraud and still got reelected. And then he got charged with voter fraud also and he got convicted, but then was appealing his conviction based on the fact that his wife had run off with his defense attorney. Reading through your book,
0: I didn't realize so many household word politicians are either residents or are representing the people of of Florida. You got Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, Mm -hmm. Ben Carson, Mike Huckabee, all residents and
2: Donald Trump. And of course, we have a lot of a lot of other well-known names here. Rush Limbaugh has been living in Palm Beach and broadcasting from there Mm -hmm. since 1996. Ann Coulter uh, has a home there, got into a big fight with election officials because she voted in the wrong precinct once.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Craig Pittman, and he's an environmental reporter for the Tampa Bay Times, and he's a native Floridian. He joins us today to talk about his book, Oh, Florida, How America's Weirdest State Influences the Rest of the Country. You know, also you've got natural disasters, Florida sticking there into the south reaches of the United States, into the Caribbean. You've got storms, hurricanes, sinkholes,
2: flooding. we get all of that. And yet we tell people it's paradise. And people buy that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, it is a beautiful place. I mean, in between the, the sinkholes and the hurricanes, it is a really gorgeous place to, to visit. And I, I love to get out and kayak and canoe and, you know, that kind of stuff. So
0: You've lived in Florida all your life. Uh, you've seen the changes. I mean, I was impressed in your book to read that back in the 1940s, it was the least developed state in the South with only 2 million people. And now it's got 20 million Yes. How do long-time Floridian families like yours see that development? Is this an exciting thing or are you nostalgic about the good old days?
2: Uh I think some of both. You know, on the one hand, some of the changes have been for the better. I mean, certainly Having air conditioning here oh, <laughs> it makes yeah. a big difference, and we've managed to cut down a bit on the mosquito population, too, since 1940. But if you live in Florida a long time, it, one native Floridian mentioned to me, it's sort of like being the kid in the Sixth Sense movie where you are constantly seeing things nobody else sees because you remember what was there before you know before Ah, all these new people got here and so you know you'll think oh yeah that shopping mall that they're now tearing down to build apartments used to be a pecan grove i remember it well you know Mm. and that's all within all within one lifetime all usually within about 20 years or so and somebody else might just think there's a handy new starbucks on the corner exactly
0: you wrote in your book craig uh, florida can fool you amid the constant flow of weird florida stories some people see this state as nothing but a house full of drugs guns and garbage they don't see the treasure. On the other hand, many people in pursuit of that treasure overlook the garbage. So is it sort of a key to happiness is to be able to focus on the on the good stuff or what's your what's your trick to enjoying Florida?
2: I think you develop a very finely honed sense of irony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's a big key. I always say if you live in Florida you'll never you'll never suffer from an irony deficiency. And so, you know, you you treasure the beautiful parts of Florida, you know, you treasure going to the beach or seeing are absolutely gorgeous sunsets or sunrises uh, or visiting. We've got this award-winning state park system that it's won Hmm. national awards three years in a row. No other state can make that boast. But, you know, never forget that, yes, we look like paradise in many cases, but often what we've done by attracting so many people here is that we've sort of, you know, in some places killed the golden goose. You quoted a woman in your book, Roxanne Gay.
0: She she wrote, I love it here, and I love how nothing makes sense.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. It's such a different vibe here because so many people are only paying attention today. They're not thinking about tomorrow. They don't think about the past. They are only concerned about chasing the buck. And to me, it makes more sense, if you live in Florida, to be aware of the past and to be looking towards the future and to think, you know, is what I'm doing today going to mean that we don't have enough water? Tomorrow right. if, is what we're doing today, going to spoil things for the things that people like to see here. Like people love to go see the manatees that, mm-hmm. are, that are here. And, you know, if we're speeding through in our boats, maybe we won't have as many manatees as we used oh, to pretty soon. And you
0: live in a state where recently the governor forbid using the term climate change.
2: Yeah, and which is kind of ironic. He has a waterfront home. So there's your there's oh. your very, very obvious irony. He has a waterfront home in Naples and he will not talk about climate change. He says, I'm not a scientist. And some scientists went and talked to him about it and showed him the evidence. And he still continued saying, well, you know, I'd rather focus on solutions. So they sent him a bunch of solutions and mm. he has yet to respond to that. And that's been about a year and a half ago. So it's one of those things where we would much rather not think about tomorrow because we're continuing to chase the dollar today. Which is a very Floridian attitude. This is Travel with Rick Steves.
0: We're talking with Craig Pittman, and his book is Oh, Florida. If you're going to Florida, you're not alone. There's, what did you say, Craig, a hun- 100 million people? Yeah,
2: 100, million, 100 million tourists coming every year. 100
0: million people going to Florida every year. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Chuck's calling from Huntsville in Alabama. Hi, Chuck. Hey, Rick. How are you? I'm doing good. Do you have a comment on Florida?
3: Yeah, we do. Um, My wife and
0: I are slowly approaching retirement age, and uh, we've looked at different areas in Florida, and one thing that popped up that kind of makes us go, don't know if this is a good idea or not, is it seems like 11 of the most violent cities in the United States seem to exist in Florida, and it's uh, a bit unsettling, to say the least, but We ended up looking at, and this really sounds bad, but an area like the villages, because it seems to be pretty safe and has a lot of things going on. What would you say to a couple who are thinking about retiring and moving to Florida? Is it a, a sane idea, or should we perhaps think of moving to Edmonds, Washington. Yeah. You know, Chuck, when you mentioned the <laughs> villages, as you were talking, I was thinking about that because I read about that in Craig's book. And uh, the villages is, is, what, 100,000 retirees. It's a, a world of golf carts with no kids allowed. It, Craig calls it <laughs> an inland cruise. Now, would that be <laughs> yes. really safe, Craig?
2: Well, there, I don't want to le- mislead you. There is crime in the villages. Uh, in fact, there's been a wave of golf cart thefts recently.
0: I heard there's a thriving black market scene for uh, Viagra also.
2: Yes, that's correct. And, um, and of course, frequently they do catch two gentlemen fighting with their canes, like their swords, <laughs> over a, over a lady <laughs> who's waiting for them in a, waiting for the winner in a nearby golf cart. Um, so it is a, it is not a dull place whatsoever, but it is, you know, it's the largest retirement community in, in the United States, which I think makes it largest in the world. You know, it's a kind of a world away from anything else going on in Florida. It's just, it's sort of its own little, little world there.
0: Now, Chuck is talking about just safety for retiring in Florida, and you could choose a gated community or a little, you know, utopia for retired people with money, I suppose. Uh, Do you think that the crime, admittedly, I mean, there's huge crime problems in in various parts of Florida, but is this permeating the state?
2: We are the state that has the most concealed weapons in the nation. I believe we're now up to about 1.5 million people who have concealed weapons permits, and we also... I'm sure it's simply a coincidence that we also lead the nation in the number of accidental shootings, Hmm. too, because people forget that they have their guns and Hmm. they drop them and they go off and things like that happen. So we have some of that. And bear in mind, too, that we had the largest mass shooting in U.S. history just last year, the Pulse shooting in Orlando. Mm
0: -hmm. So just very briefly, if somebody's thinking of retiring in Florida, do you think that? The crime is a valid concern, or if you're a typical retiree with a reasonable budget, you can live your life relatively safely as anywhere else?
2: I think if you're a typical retiree, you can pick a place where you're safe from street crime and instead your big problem is going to be white collar crime. Because of the number of stockbrokers with red flags on their records on their licenses is higher in Florida than anywhere else, because of course they're advising a lot of retirees on their investments and their retirement income and Some of those are looking to rip you off. If I was a slick con artist trying to take advantage of somebody's feeble
0: mind with a lot of money, I'd uh, hang out my shingle in Florida, I think.
2: Absolutely, and you'd have lots of competition, too. All right. Chuck, thanks for your call. Thank Mm -hmm. you, Rick. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Craig Pittman reports
0: for the Tampa Bay Times and is a native Floridian. He joins us today on Travel with Rick Steves to explain why Florida is often home to some of the oddest stories in the news. Craig's written, Oh, Florida... How America's Weirdest State Influences the Rest of the Country. His website is oh-florida.com. Our email address is radio at and Nancy from East Sandwich in Massachusetts emailed us, and she writes, I'd love to see the shells at Sanibel. I've been to the Keys, which I loved, but I actually dislike the state. Coming from the Northeast, Florida doesn't have books at the airport nor any culture in my view. It's an amusement, fishing, drinking, and beach date. I love the sunshine, but I need the arts, too. <laughs> That's an interesting comment. Craig, uh, what about that? Is there a trend in one way or another for thoughtful culture, or is it all just fun in the sun?
2: I agree with her on the shells at Sanibel. They are gorgeous. They're absolutely gorgeous. And in fact, there is a, a shell museum there that features shells not just from Sanibel or from Florida, but from all around the world. Many of them donated by Raymond Burr, who loved visiting Santa Belle when he was alive. But as for culture, no, I, I strongly disagree with her. There are places you can go in Florida where there, where you will find plenty of culture. St. Petersburg, where I live, is the home of the Salvador Dali Museum. Mm-hmm. In Miami, you have the annual Miami Book Fair. Previous headliners have been Salman Rushdie. And, of course, you can always go see and hear Dave Barry and Carl Hyacinth and those guys talking. Right. And I think the key is you have to look for this stuff. It's not going to pop out and hit you over the head the way the theme park stuff does. You know, they're out there very aggressively marketing what they have because they want your, your dollars. But if you take a few minutes and look around, you can find things to go visit, find things to go see. There are lots of museums and things to do other than just kick back and enjoy the sunshine.
0: And Leslie's calling in from West Palm Beach in Florida. Leslie, do you have any tips for enjoying Florida?
4: Sure, there's a wonderful ride from Bradenton to the East Coast. Uh, you're using your horses, and you could be in a wagon, and you're covering what they call the Old Cracker Trail in Florida. When you say someone's a cracker, back the original word was someone who is a cowboy who used a whip to drive the cattle. Mm. He didn't hit the cattle with them. it was kind of more like an auditory reminder to stay with the rest of the cows.
0: Leslie, this is an yeah, organized it's an horse organized
4: ride. ride. Yep, and it's in the last full week in February, and you're riding basically 20 miles a day, and there's people in wagons, Uh, many people are mounted on their own horses, and it's something that you are in one half of the state, and you cut right across the state from Bradenton, and end up in Fort Pierce. It's just a lovely kind of anachronism.
0: Are you literally riding a horse from coast to coast?
4: Yes, Yes, literally, Sure, sure. You are cutting right through the middle of the state, above Lake Okeechobee, but it's just a lovely throwback. You know, you were talking about the craziness and things in Florida. My mother told me once about a guy she read about in the paper who went to rob a bank, and he gave the lady a sign, and she looked at him and started laughing, and the note said, you know, give me all your money, I have a gun. And she looked at him and started laughing. Well, what happened was his gun poked through, and what it was was a zucchini in his pocket.
2: <laughs>
4: oh, Florida. a zucchini in your pocket, or you're just glad to see me? You know, so that yes. was another, another aspect of Oh, you know,
0: man, that. I hope next time I'm stuck up, it's just a zucchini. Great, Leslie. Right, exactly. <laughs> Thanks exactly. for your call, oh, Leslie. Feet. I love you're the idea well. of the horse ride. Bye now.
4: Love your show. Thank you. Thank
0: you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Craig Pittman. His book is Oh, Florida. Craig, uh, in your book, you you say uh, Florida is the punchline state. Uh, Let's just close our discussion of your beautiful state with what you mean by that.
2: Well, I mean that uh, a lot of people regard us as nothing but a joke, that, you know, they tell a story about something crazy happening here and ha 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 and everybody laughs and that's it. But my hope with this book is to tell people, yes, there's crazy stuff that happens here, but also some very cool stuff. And don't underestimate Florida. Don't just... Think of us as a place that you laugh about, but also think of us as a place where some really innovative and interesting things have happened and are continuing to happen and will continue to influence the rest of the country and the rest of the world.
0: All right. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Ken Ilgunis believes we all have a right to roam. In his case he walked right into the debate over the Keystone XL pipeline when he decided to hike and hitchhike where it was going to be built from north to south across the Great Plains. He joins us next to explain what it felt like camping out in fall and winter in the middle of the prairie and what the experience taught him. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Ken Ilgunis doesn't seem to do things the conventional way, or the easy way, for that matter. He got a lot of media attention a few years ago for living in his van during graduate school in order to avoid racking up student debt. He wrote about that in a memoir called Walden on Wheels. Having graduated with a master's degree and debt-free, he left his van behind and headed for Alberta to investigate what people were thinking about the proposed extension route for the Keystone XL Pipeline. He wanted to see for himself where 830,000 barrels of oil would travel each day and what it might mean to the people who lived in its path. So, in September of 2012, Ken got some camping gear and headed south on foot. Destination, Port Arthur, Texas, on the Gulf Coast. Ken chronicles his trek in his book, Trespassing Across America, one man's epic, never-done-before and sort-of-illegal hike across the heartland. Kim, what made you want to do this?
3: I suppose I wanted purpose.
0: I'm one person who's
3: kind of grappling with something as enormous as climate change. So this was my attempt to, I guess, take on climate change, or at least to understand it and come to terms with it and grapple with it and talk to folks about it. I guess you could
0: call it kind of a, an eco-adventure. The cover of your book has a photograph of you, like tightroping, literally walking atop a pipeline across the prairie. When you see a pipeline cutting across vast prairie land in Nebraska or something like that, what does that pipeline symbolize to you? To me, the pipeline,
3: it symbolizes the past. You know, we've been building pipelines since the 1860s. The first pipeline was actually a a wooden gutter somewhere in West Virginia or Pennsylvania. So we've been building these pipelines for about 150 years. And up until now, they've gone unquestioned. We Hmm. live in a different age. This is the Anthropocene. This is when we're aware of what we're doing to the planet, what we're doing to cause climate change. So when someone proposes one of those old pipelines, I think you're living in the past. It's time to move on to
0: different, more sustainable things. Part of your trip was walking and trespassing through Canada, and part of your trip was walking and trespassing through America. You met Canadians and Americans who were salt-of-the-earth people. Uh, Were there any distinctions between the Canadians you met and the Americans you met? How would you characterize the personalities and the politics of the people you met?
3: The sort of character of the people between the two different countries, I'd say there's practically no difference at all. These are good people. These are hospitable and generous people. These are tough and practical people. I ended up moving to Nebraska and, and living with a, a ranching and farming family for a while. And I was just amazed with their sort of practical intelligence you know Mm -hmm. their just ability to fix something you know when something breaks on me my first instinct is to throw it out and get a new one or get Mm -hmm. some professional to fix it whereas their first instinct is yeah let's just fix it right now you know and that way I felt quite stupid around Mm -hmm. them but these are people who you know work with the land, they're working with cattle, they're working in soybeans and wheat and hay
0: and and corn, inclined to be conservative north of the border as well as south of the border.
3: That's right, yeah, Alberta' kind of considered the Texas of Canada for their reliance on fossil fuels. how big fossil fuels play a part in their provincial economy, so it is this is a very white part of North America, in fact. I think walking from Alberta down to Kansas, I did not see one person of color. It was white people that entire
0: time. And it's people who are close to nature. And you're close to nature. You're a self-described environmentalist. Did you get a sense that you were walking through the actual tangible results of climate change when it comes to droughts and fires and so on, talking to people who were personally impacted by that but opposed taking action against climate change?
3: Not really. And I think the Great Plains are one of those spots in North America that hasn't been affected by climate change as much as other zones. Mm. You know, out in the Gulf, we have those just enormous hurricanes. We have uh, Hurricane Sandy up in the northeast. In Alaska, we have villages that are now being affected by sea level rise droughts have always been a part of the Great Plains. And I was walking through one of the worst droughts in the past 50 years. I think over the course of four and a half months, I only got rained or snowed on 10 days. So climate change is not really affecting people's lives the way it is in other parts of the country. And without that sort of experiential impact is just not going to play as much a part in people's political mm-hmm. or environmental outlook. I think it's going to be more likely to be dismissed or considered something like a government hoax or some conspiracy and I I heard that a lot when I engaged folks on their thoughts about climate change.
0: Ken Ilguna spent four months trespassing across pastures and fields of the heartland to see where the new Keystone XL pipeline was planning to go, and to hear from the people who lived along its route. He wrote about the adventure in his book, Trespassing Across America. You can also listen to Ken's earlier visit with us on Travel with Rick Steves. Look in our show archives for program number 471 from January 2017. There's a link at ricksteves.com radio. Ken, I know from reading your book that you're a big fan of what you call the right to roam, In Europe, especially in England, uh, ramblers have their own clubs, and every once in a while they'll have what they call a mass trespass, where they actually go out and walk across every field asserting their right to walk across the land. The subtitle of your book is One Man's Epic Never Done Before and Sort of Illegal Hike Across the Heartland. Talk a moment about trespassing and and how that spiced up your experience as you walked 1,700 miles.
3: Yeah, I I think I've trespassed across America probably more than... uh, anyone alive, unless there's an especially peripatetic land surveyor out there, I, I think I've, I've got him. But yeah, when you're trespassing across private property every single day, you know, hopping barbed wire fences, walking over cow pastures, walking through herds of cows, and, and you know, constantly looking over your shoulder and expecting to get shot any second, it makes you think about property in a way that you know mm. I, I never did before and during the research of my book for trespassing across america i came across other countries systems and was just so fascinated with mm-hmm. them and in fact i'm i'm working on my next book uh, tentatively called the right to roam on this topic kind of proposing to bring some of these systems to the us as far-fetched as that may sound So yes, in countries like Sweden, Norway, Scotland, they have the right to roam. And this isn't just the right to roam over national parkland or public property. This is the right to roam across private property. Hmm. So a Scot or a Swede or a Norwegian can hike pretty much wherever he wants with some limitations. Like you can't go across, uh, you know, sensitive agricultural fields. You can't go near anyone's home. There's very legitimate limitations in place. But in the U.S., we have a completely different system where about 70% of our land is privately owned, and most of that is off-limits. And frankly, I just find that unacceptable.
0: I just can't imagine walking from Alberta to Texas, to the Gulf of Mexico. You must have gotten really familiar of just looking at your boots hitting the turf, What's the turf like? I mean, because this is, I think, a common denominator of your 1,700 miles is Great Plains. The Great Plains go from the tundra all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. How did the turf change from Alberta to Nebraska to Texas and so on?
3: I got to tell you, the Great Plains has got to be some of the best hiking terrain in the world. You know, as a backcountry ranger up in Alaska... My feet were in swamp or tussocks and tundra and just the worst sort of terrain. But out on the Great Plains, it's just like nice, hard grasslands for each footfall. And most of the people, when they think about the Great Plains, they think about that one time they drove across the I-70 in Kansas. And you know they're left with the impression that the Great Plains are flat, windy, and boring. And if that's you, if you've had that impression, Get it out of your head right now, because that's not what the Great Plains are. When you walk across the Great Plains, you see that there's something far more diverse and dynamic and geographically rich. The plains are not flat. They are rolling. There's buttes and hills and mountains and ravines and canyons. And there was this one time in Saskatchewan where I was walking through this hayfield, and about 5,000 ducks just ascended into the Mm. sky and began to kind of swirl like a tornado about to touch down. There was times in Montana where these giant herds of deer and pronghorn would just be soaring across the prairie like comets, just leaving in their wake, just shuddering grass. And, you know, you watch the wind just blow over the grasslands, the grass just lifts and falls and lifts and falls and you're walking beneath this enormous plain sky there's no trees or and often no hills to obscure your view so you're just walking beneath this this giant ocean of blueness where you have these this convoy of cottony clouds just flowing southward with the wind and you know you just feel like this solitary skiff out on this ocean of grass and you know even though the Great Plains are in the very center of one of the busiest, loudest, most populous countries on earth, out there you can feel really alone and I mean that in a magnificent way.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves, we're talking with Ken Ilgunas his book is Trespassing Across America Ken, you wrote that this adventure brought out in you the Thoreau and the Whitman
3: That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think Thoreau he's kind of known as being a misanthrope, someone who's a little cynical, someone who's a little crabby. And, you know, I can be that way. I think I came into this journey that way. He's a bit of a hermit. He likes to be by himself. Whereas Walt Whitman, the poet, in his poem, Leaves of Grass, he's celebrating not just the Walden ponds of America, those natural places, remote and tucked away. He's singing the song of every man, the clatter of our tools, all the workers, all the people, as well as our best natural spaces. And when you walk across the Great Plains and interact with ranchers and farmers and Native Americans and and all these different sorts of people and seeing one of the best sides of America You can't help but become more of a poet, more of a Walt Whitman.
0: That's so beautiful. And you wrote in your book also being caught up in a stampede of cows in South Dakota. Describe that experience.
3: (laughs) Well, let me back up for a second and say I kind of walked into this journey with a phobia of cows. You know, I'm from suburban New York. I never touched a cow or milked a cow. You know, the only thing I ever did was eat a cow. I knew I was going to have to walk through tens of thousands of cows, so I thought fear was a pretty useful emotion to to carry with me, at least to start off. And, you know, as I started in Alberta and Saskatchewan, that phobia gradually went away. Typically, when you walk through a herd of cow, which I had to do several times a day, one would look up at you with this really curious Expression. Then all 50 of them would look up at you with this curious expression. And, you know, they'd have a whole bunch of grass just kind of sticking out the sides of their mouth. One would start running away. And then the whole herd starts running away. And, you know, you feel so powerful. You're just 180 pounds scaring off 50,000. So I wasn't afraid of cows anymore by the time I got to South Dakota. So I walked through this river and hopped over this barbed wire fence and started walking towards this herd of black Angus cows like I do every single day. And rather than running away, they just kind of move to the left and right a little bit, creating this narrow cow corridor, which I'm now walking through. So I have cows on each side of me very close. And I start walking down this gentle slope into a dried creek bed. And these cows that I just walked past, I hear this thunderous roar behind me. And I look back for one blip of a second. And for that blip of a second, I see 20 black Angus cows flank to flank, storming down this creek bed, tufts of grass being launched into the air. And you know, there's only one thing to do when you have 20 cows chasing you. And then that's to run. So, uh, you know, I dropped my trekking poles and I got rid of my backpack and I took off across the prairie like no human has ever done before. And I got to a barbed wire fence and rolled under it. Easily the most terrifying experience, not only of this trip, but of my life. <laughs> wow. You know, after this, after this adventure, I did move to Nebraska for a while and I started working with cattle on a, a rancher's land he wanted to get rid of my phobia so he put me right in the middle of a herd when we were sorting cattle we were sorting the calves from the adults uh, and doing like pregnancy checks and pretty soon you 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 do kind of get over that phobia when you just realize how scared they are of you and when i tell rick my friend this story this rancher he just laughs at me and just says those cows were curious but i swear to you those cows had murder in their eyes (laughs)
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Ken Ilgunas. His book is Trespassing Across America, One Man's Epic Never Done Before, and Sort of Illegal, Hike Across the Heartland. Ken, this is a huge personal investment on your part. Uh, You have a lot of passion in this. Explain, in a nutshell, what was your mission? And now looking back on it, what did you accomplish? My mission going into it was
3: unclear. And I think... It's never going to be clear when you head into an adventure because, you know, here I am, an East Coaster who's never lived on the Great Plains, who's never worked in farmland, who's never worked with pipelines. I wanted to go into it with an open mind and learn everything I could about it. So that was the primary mission. When I did realize that this pipeline wasn't going to do much for these communities, it wasn't going to do anything good for our aquifers and water supply, it wasn't going to do anything good for the tar sands, it wasn't going to do anything good for our atmosphere, I got pretty opposed to it, and I I wanted it dead. And I remember walking and talking with folks and farmers and ranchers, and many of them said, yeah, we have an oil economy. We need oil. And I thought about that and, you know, I had boots and trekking poles and backpacks, a lot of them made with oil products. You know, if you think about it, just look around whatever room you're in or whatever car you're in and you're going to see that fossil fuels are pretty much in every square inch of everything in some way. So in one way, that's true. And in one way, we do, at least at this moment, need fossil fuels. But I thought about the word need, You know, what do we need? And when you look at some of the levels of fossil fuel consumption in Europe, in Japan, they use about half as much. They emit about half as much greenhouse gases per capita as the U.S. They clearly don't need as much fossil fuel as we do. So it just made me think about need. And when you walk on foot across the country you do realize we
0: can get by with far less. Boy, Ken Ilgunis, you've walked 1,700 miles thinking about these complicated and important issues. You have a right, I believe, to share the thoughts that have been crystallized in your mind over this experience, and uh, you've done that in your book, Trespassing Across America, One Man's Epic Never Done Before and Sort of Illegal Hike Across the Heartland. Ken, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, thanks for your book. It's been a real honor, Rick. Thank you.
4: Back on the train This time tomorrow By foot, wheel or sail But this time no sorrow First stop, Jackson Next stop, Shangri-La And I cannot wait to see The expression on the face Of my sweet lord
2: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac kaplan wolner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We have studio help this week from KPCC in Pasadena, WUSF Tampa, and WBFO in Buffalo. You'll find links to our guests in the notes for each week's show. You can also listen again in the show archives and comment on what you hear at ricksteves.com
4: radio. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece, and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.